All right, folks. I've got my glasses on. I've got my coffee in my hand. Got my notes open. We're ready to go. Welcome to the show. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus and his disciples were passing through a field of grain. Some of the disciples picked some of the spikes of grain and ate some of it, rubbing it out in their hands. And some Pharisees saw it and had a fit, because this was done on the Sabbath day, which the Pharisees had ruled picking of grain as an act of work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Now, folks, that's legalism. People want to talk about what's legalistic, man. You can't get more no more. Jesus told them that God established the Sabbath day for man's benefit. And that he didn't create man to be burdened by the Sabbath. The whole point is to temporarily relieve man of working burdens, not to burden man with religious ritualism. And then, just in case they didn't receive that bit of flawless logic, he then told them that he is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, if anyone should know about what's right and what's wrong or what's good and what's bad on the Sabbath day, it'd be him. And then later, some Pharisees laid a trap for Jesus in a synagogue. When he got there, it was the Sabbath day still, and inside was a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees asked him, is it allowable to heal a man on the Sabbath day? Then Jesus answered their question with a question and said, is it allowable to do good on the Sabbath day? Of course, he looked around the room at all of them, waiting for an answer. None of them said anything. Then Jesus told the man with the withered hand to come over to him and stand in the center of the room. And then Jesus asked the Pharisees, Which one of you would not help your sheep get out of a pit if he had fallen into it on the Sabbath day? Isn't a man more valuable than a sheep? Of course, none of them said anything. Then Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, and then the Pharisees take off angry hold a special council with the Herodians to discuss a plan to put Jesus to death. Meanwhile, as Jesus and his disciples are walking back to Galilee, a vast multitude of people accumulate around them to be healed. And it could have been anywhere between several hundred to several thousand. Because when they get to the lake, Jesus tells his disciples to get the boat ready, just in case, because he had healed so many people that they were literally tackling him to touch him. Some of them had leaped over others to fall down on top of him to be healed. But in spite of the multitude, Jesus hung in there and healed every single one of them. And then afterwards, Jesus went up to a peak to be alone and pray. He prayed there all night long. And then the next morning, he called over his disciples. There were several of them at this point. Don't know exactly how many, but there were a lot. But of those several, he called out by name 12 of them and appointed them to be his apostles, his special messengers. He granted them the power to do what he'd been doing, the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, and stuff like that. These twelve disciples that received this special honor were Peter, James, and his brother John, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, another guy named James, and another guy named Simon, You know, Peter's name was also Simon. That's why they call him Simon Peter, but this is a different Simon. And then two other guys named Judas, one of which would eventually become the Judas who betrays Jesus. And, you know, interesting that Jesus knew all before he came down here, but still chose him. If he had wanted to get out of being crucified, he didn't have to choose him. Of course, if you're going to go down that line of reasoning, he didn't have to come down here at all to begin with. But what a lot of people miss out on, and they actually discover this for themselves as they go along through these Gospels, 
Jesus' crucifixion was the whole purpose behind coming to the planet Earth. During his first visit to Jerusalem over a year ago, in his conversation with Nicodemus, that's exactly what he told him. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert on a pole as a symbol of sin being judged so that the Israelites could be saved from their sins. Just like that happened, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a pole so that the whole world could be saved from their sins. Jesus told Nicodemus that early on, before anyone anywhere had even been given the opportunity to reject him. At that time, there hadn't been any problems with Pharisees. There were no plots being devised to kill him. That was back even before John the Baptist had been arrested. The whole thing was planned in advance. And now, Jesus has just personally picked out 12 people to be on the inside of what's going on. 12 apostles. And one of those that he chose would eventually be the one who betrays him. And when it happens, Jesus will show us that even then he's still in control. But anyway, let's come back to the present. Jesus just picked out these 12 guys. That's where we left off last time. And what follows is the famous Sermon on the Mount. The people who were there to hear this sermon were probably the same people who Jesus just healed the day before, so there was already a huge crowd gathered there. This is reported neatly and succinctly by Luke in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49. But it's also reported in explicit detail by Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 29. Matthew gave it three whole chapters. To set the stage here, let's just look real quick at Luke's prologue to the sermon. Starting in Luke 6, verse 17, it says, Jesus came down with them and took his stand on a level spot with a crowd of his disciples and a vast throng of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to listen to him and to be cured of their diseases, even those who were disturbed and troubled with unclean spirits. And they were being healed also. And all the multitude were seeking to touch him. For healing power was all the while going forth from him and curing them all, saving them from severe illnesses and calamities. And Jesus solemnly lifting up his eyes on his disciples, he said, and then Luke gives his shortened, highlighted version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then Matthew records his version of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, folks, there's some debate out there concerning whether or not these two accounts of the same sermon are actually two accounts of the same sermon. Some believe these might be reports of two completely different sermons that were given at two completely different occasions that are assumed to be two reports of the same event because the settings and the sermon itself have some similarities. They point out that Luke says that Jesus came down with them and took his stand, while Matthew says that Jesus went up. And they may have a point, but if these two reports are of the same event, then this contradiction really isn't a contradiction. It's easily resolved. Jesus could have come down to take a stand on a level spot, just like Luke reported, to which Luke then follows to say that surrounding him were a great crowd of his disciples and a vast throng of people from all over. Matthew doesn't mention that, but then says, seeing the crowds, then he went up on the mountain, taking his disciples with him and so forth. You know, he had to go down amongst them to heal them, but then went back up a little bit to preach the sermon. Another key difference between these two reports is that Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God consistently in the account that's provided by Luke, while in the account provided by Matthew, Jesus sometimes uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. 
And while those two phrases sound like two different titles for the same thing, they really aren't, the more you study this. In those two phrases, the word of is used differently because of the ownership of the word. When it says kingdom of God, the word of ties the king together with the kingdom, meaning it's a word of ownership. And that ownership applies to the whole of the word kingdom. The whole kingdom is God's, not just part of it, all of it. The kingdom of God. But when it says kingdom of heaven, the word of is still used as a word of ownership, but it's also a word of division. It's like saying one of five pieces or two of six apples. It's still a word of ownership, but also one of partitioning. It's like saying the town of Texas versus the state of Texas. Is the state the same as the town? No. When you say the state of Texas, you mean all of Texas. But when you say the town of Texas, you mean only one part of Texas, the town. Heaven itself is the kingdom of God. Where is heaven? Well, heaven is outside our physical universe. It transcends space-time. It's where the Father's throne is. That's heaven. That's the kingdom of God. So if heaven is the kingdom of God, then what is the kingdom of heaven? Technically, it doesn't exist yet, but it's prophesied to be inside our physical universe, inside our space-time. It's where the Son's throne is. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the Messiah over the planet Earth and our physical universe. When the angel Gabriel visited Mary, he told her that her son would rule on the throne of David. Now, the reason why this causes a lot of confusion is because the current definitions of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven exist mainly because of the time period that we're in right now. Right now, as we speak, the kingdom of God is heaven and heaven only. But in the future, when Jesus rules the universe, it's at that point that the definition of kingdom of God will extend to include the universe. Everything everywhere will be the kingdom of God then. But it's the rule of Jesus Christ over the earth that will be called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will obviously be part of the kingdom of God, so both phrases are the same in a sense. But only in the sense that when you're in the kingdom of heaven, you'll also be in the kingdom of God. Kind of like when you're in the town of Texas, you're also in the state of Texas. You can't be in Dallas of Texas and not also be in the state of Texas. But you can be in the state of Texas and not be in Dallas. And it's because of all of this that some believe these two accounts of the Sermon on the Mount are actually two different events. Because Luke's account only uses the phrase kingdom of God, while Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And also, Luke's account is less than a single chapter long, while Matthew's account spans three chapters. And they use all of this as evidence that these two accounts might not be reporting the same event. And they might have a point. But the differences could just be the result of the same report being recorded from two separate viewpoints. And that's a high possibility, because Luke wasn't there. He was an investigative reporter who researched all of this out and reported the highlights he only reported what he could confirm from two or more sources like any good investigative reporter would do. And that's why the sermon that he recorded was more of a bulletin of the whole thing. It was just less than a chapter long. But Matthew was actually there. And he reported this as an eyewitness. Matthew was formerly a customs official. And with that occupation came the skill of knowing shorthand. That's why his account is 2.5 chapters longer than Luke's because he was actually there to record every single word in shorthand as he heard it live. Luke didn't have that luxury. He had to piece it together from interviews. 
And the reason why Matthew used the phrase kingdom of heaven was because his entire account presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who's prophesied to rule on David's throne. Luke was presenting Jesus as the Son of Man to the Gentile readers. Both accounts of the sermon, though, are specifically addressed to disciples. Not just the twelve who became apostles, but disciples. We tend to get those two terms confused. A disciple is a follower of Christ. Anybody can be a disciple if they choose to be one. I'm one. You can be one. But you don't choose to be an apostle. That's a position that is appointed by Jesus himself. So where both accounts say the sermon was addressed to his disciples, that's more than the twelve. That's all the others who were there who chose to follow. A great crowd was there for healing, and they heard it too, but both accounts say that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, those who chose to follow him. And I bring that up to point out, if you're a follower of Christ, this sermon is for you. Now folks, of all the passages in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most familiar and therein lies the problem. It seems that it's always the most familiar passages of Scripture that wind up being misunderstood the most, not only by the world, but by Christians, sometimes especially by Christians, because it's so familiar to us. We don't give it any real thought because we know it already. We think. But when you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, those familiar portions of it take on a whole different meaning. Throughout the entire sermon, it's a surprise to discover that there's nothing in the sermon that addresses how to be saved. There's no altar call, no John 3.16 type passage. There's no pathway, no spiritual or mystical hint of it in there anywhere. And one of the reasons for that is because it's addressed to followers of Christ. It's already assumed that you're saved. And as we go through this sermon, you're going to experience a wide range of emotions. You'll go from one side of the spectrum to the next before it's over. Parts of it are simple, down-to-earth, common-sense principles, just good sense. Parts of it are very, very deep concerning what a follower of Christ is to expect on the planet Earth as a result of their discipleship. Parts of it are very encouraging and comforting because Jesus himself seems to step outside time and speak directly to you and acknowledge your personal situation, tells you why it's there, and then lets you know what to expect because of that situation when you get to heaven. It's very exciting, very encouraging. But then there's also some discouragement in there too. Because this sermon is God's personal view of what he considers to be acceptable human conduct. And he sets the bar extremely high. But the reason he does is because he knows he's already talking to people who are already saved. So this sermon isn't about how to get into heaven or how to stay out of hell. Because if it was, then we'd all be in very serious trouble. At one point in Matthew's account, Jesus even goes so far to say, Be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Whoa. If this sermon is about how to get into heaven, then we're all in trouble. And yet, he never says, well, try the best you can, but don't worry about screwing up, because after all, you're only human. He doesn't do that. At no time does he do that. This is the New Testament equivalent to the Ten Commandments. These are his commandments, not suggestions. It's God's detailed outline of what he considers to be acceptable human conduct. And there's no loophole. None. On the one hand. On the other hand, before we're through... It'll be obvious, blatantly and painfully obvious, that no man has ever successfully lived up to what's described in this sermon. No man except for one. And that's the one who's giving the sermon. 
All right, let's get started. We'll start with Luke's record first, since it's the shortest. Starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus pronounces four blessings and then four woes. Now, a blessing, God's blessing is his personal approval, his special favor, and his act of giving special gifts, all of which promote joy. A woe results in the opposite of joy. It's grievous distress, affliction, trouble, suffering, anguish. You get the idea. Jesus pronounces four blessings and then four woes. And each blessing and each woe is related to each other. If you're on one side of the spectrum, you'll receive a blessing. If you're on the other side of the spectrum, you'll receive a woe. So let's just read them and then we'll come back and look at them carefully. Verse 20. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you that are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who now hunger, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who now cry, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now make sure you pay attention to the fact that Jesus is addressing his followers, not people who aren't saved. These are people who have left everything to follow him. And with this list of blessings and woes, Jesus could be just covering two opposite sides of a spectrum, covering the extremes on each side. You're somewhere in between these two extremes. You're either rich or poor, hungry or full, crying or laughing, popular or not so popular. And he's saying, as a follower of Christ, the more you're on one side of the spectrum, the more blessed you are. The more you're on the other side of the spectrum, the more woe. Not that being rich, full, happy, and popular is bad, and that being poor, hungry, sad, and unpopular is good. That's not the point. It's just that while you're here on the earth, remember we learned when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the desert, who is the God of this world? Until Jesus rules over it, it's presently occupied and ruled by Satan and his forces. It's his planet, temporarily, but right now we're under an enemy occupation. So while you're still living here under this enemy occupation, the result of being a follower of Christ has its consequences. Those consequences are not the result of you being a follower of Christ, but rather Satan's response to your discipleship, constantly testing your faith. If Satan has left you alone and you're rich, full, happy, and popular with the world, then you must not be much of a threat to the forces of darkness. The harder he's hitting you, the more of a threat you must be to him, and therefore the more reward that's waiting for you in heaven. The less he's hitting you, then the less of a threat you must be to him, and the more you're actually in league with him, whether you know it or not. And that has its own consequences just waiting to explode in your face. Those are the woes that are waiting there for you. And that's one interpretation of this list of blessings and woes. The other interpretation of this list is that it could be Jesus personally letting you know what usually comes with being a follower of Christ. Being poor, being hungry, tears, and being hated, excluded, and talked about negatively. Now, Jesus doesn't get into why all of this happens to those who follow him. The rest of the Bible explains that. And Jesus knows that the people he's addressing already knows why. We're in the midst of a supernatural war on the one hand, but knowing all of that doesn't really comfort us, does it? It might explain things, but it doesn't bring much comfort. 
being poor, being hungry. All throughout the Bible, you get the impression that being rich itself isn't wrong. It's just that it's always too easy to become dependent on those riches once you have them. The more dependent you are on the riches, the less dependent you are on God, and that always results in devastating choices. And don't think that your level of faith is strong enough to withstand that. Because the Bible is full of examples of powerful men and women of faith who screwed up because of riches. The temptation to rely on financial security is extremely powerful. The desire to achieve it, the drive to achieve it is consuming. And then once you have it, the desire to keep it and the fear of losing it, it's just as powerful and just as consuming. Which is probably why anyone who's put their life in God's hands and chooses to follow Christ won't have them. Because the ability to have riches and not rely on them is extremely rare. Now there are exceptions like Abraham, but go throughout the entire Bible. You won't find too many strong people of faith with riches who don't get fouled up in the process of relying on them. Another side effect of riches is pride. Can you be rich and lead a humble life? Some people can. But that's not the normal way that our human character responds to riches. If we aren't proud of the riches themselves, then we'll be proud of what we did to get them. Hey, look what I did. Look what I achieved. Of course, knowing all of that doesn't bring us much comfort while we're poor. It should, but it doesn't because we have to endure what we endure day in and day out, which is why Jesus pronounces the following blessing. He says, blessed are you that are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And you can't help but notice the tenses of these words. Blessed is in the past tense. In other words, you've already been blessed. It's already happened. It's sitting in heaven right now. It's all there under your name waiting for you. And right now, while you're still on the earth, you're blessed because you don't have to be burdened with worrying about how to get it or how to keep it. It's already yours, and it's waiting for you where there is no way of losing it. And then Jesus says, for yours is present tense. For yours is the kingdom of God. It's a done deal. There's your financial security. But then on the opposite side of the spectrum, he says, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. They have nothing to look forward to, folks. Their life is devoted to keeping what they have. And that's something that history and the laws of physics have proven is impossible. And because it's impossible, it's a severe burden. There's no peace because there's no relationship with God. There's no time for one. you got to keep those bills paid. you got to get that paycheck. got to keep what you have. Can't lose it. Can't live without it. It's like a drug addiction. You don't mean for money to rule your life, but eventually it does. It makes all of your decisions for you. It decides what you do with all of your time. It's the source of what happiness you have or whatever grief you have. It becomes a God to most. Not all, but most to those who get it. And that's why, if you're a follower of Christ, you've got Satan on the one hand withholding it from you because he's upset that you're not on his side. But on the other hand, you've got God allowing Satan to withhold it from you for completely different reasons. Blessed are you that are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who now hunger, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who now cry, for you shall laugh. Why would we cry? Where are those tears coming from, folks? If you're a follower in Christ, why are you crying? You could save from being poor and hungry, but I think it's something else. As a follower of Christ, the more you attempt to follow him, the closer you are to him. And the closer you are to him, the more you will see things around you the way he sees them. Ecclesiastes says, with wisdom comes much grief. And in addition to that, the closer you are to God, then the more Satan tries to derail you. And those assaults are vicious.
And in combination with all of that, the closer you are to God, the more alien you will feel living on this planet. You will feel like a stranger who doesn't belong or fit in. And you won't want to fit in. But even though you don't want to fit in, you will long for the comfort and the joy that comes from fitting in somewhere. And it's a comfort that will elude you. But to that, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you, who separate you from their company and exclude you and revile you and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now I want to focus on that last blessing, folks. First of all, I've known Christians who have taken that last blessing and used it to become obnoxious harpies. They're running around all over the place, shoving the Bible down people's throats, telling them that they're all going to hell, that they're not Christian enough, it's my way or the highway, God told me this, why don't you listen to me, blah, blah, blah. And when people get fed up with them and tell them to get lost or to go away or to shut up, then they take this verse and say, Aha, see, the Bible said, Blessed are you when men hate you for my sake. People like that are actually used by Satan more than they are by God. They're the same kind of people who got preachy about Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath day. But anyway, let me focus on the rest of us here concerning this last blessing. Blessed are you when men hate you, who separate you from their company and exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. How many of you have lost friends who were unsaved just because you took the Bible seriously. You didn't become a harpy. You never even brought up your faith, maybe once or twice. But because you read a Bible, they found out about it. You're a Christian now, and suddenly they have begun attempting to attack that side of you, even though you haven't done anything to provoke this. You're not out to change them, but boy, are they out to change you. And when they fail, what happens? Things get worse. They try harder. These are your so-called friends. Then it gets to the point where every single conversation leads to some form of attack against your faith. So eventually, one of two things happen. Either you get fed up and tell them off, to which they in turn expel you from their friendship, or you have to expel them from yours because it won't stop. They won't leave you alone. They're no longer your friends. They've made themselves your enemy who hates you. And some of you may have even lost Christian friends because you took the Bible more seriously than they did. You weren't out to change them. But they've expelled you from their inner circle because if you were a real Christian, then you'd be married by now with a successful career and 2.5 children. Why aren't you a successful lawyer or a successful doctor or a successful whatever, as though all of that is somehow a thermometer for where your spiritual maturity is? That's not what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't fit into the mold of today's prosperity, Christians. Heaven forbid you trust the Lord for all of those things instead of going out there, grabbing the bull by the horns and getting it yourself. These are the same Christians who think the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is actually somewhere in the Bible. Not only is that not in the Bible, folks, but it's a message that opposes what the Bible teaches. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who've reached the end of themselves. Sometimes God drives you to the end of yourself because that's what it takes to get you to quit leaning on your own abilities, to quit leaning on your own understanding and start trusting Him. Verse 20, Blessed are you that are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who now hunger, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who now cry, for you shall laugh. 
Blessed are you when men hate you, and exclude you and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. What, what do you mean rejoice? I mean, I can understand being comforted when Jesus said, If you're poor, you'll be rich in heaven. If you're hungry, you'll be full in heaven. If you're crying, you'll be laughing in heaven. And with each category, Jesus says, You're blessed. You've been blessed, and yours is a kingdom of God. That's a comfort. But here in this last category, he turns it up a few notches. He's saying, if it's gotten to the point where your commitment has actually made you unpopular, men hate you and exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, not because you're a religious harpy, not because you're an arrogant, judgmental Pharisee, but because you're actually a follower of Christ and Satan's turned up the heat to the extent that people hate you. And they exclude you. And when your name comes up, somebody rolls their eyes. If it's gotten that bad, Jesus says to you, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. Folks, don't gloss over that word great. We use it all the time. But how great is great when Jesus is the one using that word? This is a guy who invented the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, stars the size of our solar system, whole galaxies. I mean, you've got good, better, great. What impresses God to the extent that he would ever use the word great? Even in Genesis chapter 1, when he's creating the entire universe, he only uses the word good. God saw it, that it was good. <laughs> it's the universe. So what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word great? Whatever it is, Jesus is saying it's worthy of your jumping up and down out of rejoicing. Blessed are you when men hate you, who separate you from their company and exclude you, who revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. For indeed, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did the prophets. See, now Jesus is even comparing you to the Old Testament prophets. What a compliment. Moses, Daniel, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, people hated them too. They were excluded. People mentioned their names as evil. So if you're excluded and hated and mentioned in gossip, you're in good company. But woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Ooh, ouch. If you're one of those Christians who's got a million friends, everybody knows you, everybody thinks you're the greatest, nobody anywhere has anything but praises, look out, you're probably on the wrong side. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Okay, so far, all of this is comforting. Now here's where it starts to get rough. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Wow. You know, there have been occasions while in prayer, a few names have popped in my head, names of people who were always a problem, and occasionally I might have a moment where I'm looking at them with God's eyes, not my own, and I feel sorry for them, and I begin to pray for them. This doesn't happen too often, folks, I'll admit that, but it has happened, and what motivates it is God's love moving through you. It's not your love, it's His love, it's God's love moving through your own heart. Suddenly, they have no power over you. All of the wrongs that they've ever done seem so insignificant. It's in those moments that it becomes easy to obey this verse. But I'll admit, this isn't a consistent habit of mine, as it should be. Love your enemies. 
do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. You know, when I read this, it reminds me of another phrase that's mentioned several times throughout the Scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, Romans 12, and so many other places where it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I actually got to see that verse in action many years ago. Someone close to me had her home broken into by her ex-husband. He went into the dining room and broke several dishes on the floor. Not only did he destroy several dishes that were antiques, but he damaged the floor where he hit it so hard with all the dishes. He had done stuff like this before. This wasn't new. So I counseled her to call the police and press charges. They'd been divorced for almost a decade. He broke into her home. That's a crime. And he caused malicious damage. That's a crime. Call the police and press charges. This has got to stop. So she did. An arrest was made. He was bailed out, and he hired a lawyer who contacted hers and offered a deal. If she would drop the charges, he would financially compensate her for the damaged floor and the dishes. So she talked with me about it, and I told her, no, you don't want to do that. This isn't about the money. This is about him breaking into your home and destroying your property whenever he feels like it. He's done this kind of stuff before. This has got to stop. So then she thought about that, and then she prayed about it. And then she came back to me and she said that she was going to go ahead and accept the deal and drop the charges. Well, I went ballistic. So I was like, you've got to be kidding. But she said she prayed about it and remembered that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That accepting this deal wasn't giving in like I said it was. She would be recompensated for the damage that was done. The floor would be fixed and the dishes would be appraised and paid for. That's justice. If he's willing to do that, what would be the point of not dropping the charges? And I said, well, to keep him from doing this again, to make him see that he can't get away with this, that he can't just do whatever he wants and come over here to your house and break in like it's his. That's a crime. He needs to pay for that crime. This isn't just about the floor and the dishes. It's about the act itself. You might get the dishes and the floor paid for, but that doesn't pay for the act itself, the fact that it happened. But she said, Josh, I've already forgiven him for all of that. That's in God's hands now. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm not interested in getting revenge. If he's willing to pay for the dishes that he broke and the floor that he damaged, that's eye for an eye. That's fair. I didn't let him get away with it. I called the cops. He was arrested, and now he's paying for it. What you're wanting, Josh, is revenge. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want, because that's the way it has to be. That's the way he is. That's what it's going to take to get through his dense skull that he can't do stuff like this. But she said, Josh, I prayed long and hard about this. The deal is a fair deal. He'll pay for the floor he damaged. He'll pay for the dishes that he broke, and that's enough. Everything else is in God's hands. I prayed about it, Josh. I did. And I kept hearing that verse in my head over and over that said, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, how do you argue with that, folks? I mean, I tried. But how do you really argue with that? I went home mad because I didn't like where she went with this. I didn't really believe that this was the result of long, hard prayer. I believed that she was just cowering down to him like she had done before. So when I got home, I did need some praying. Because I was really concerned for her safety, and I was greatly angered by what had happened. And I told God, I said, Lord, you and I know what her ex-husband is capable of. And here we are, we finally have him in a situation where he will finally pay for his actions. This deal to pay for the dishes and the floor, that's typical power trip stuff. He'll agree to pay for all that if she drops the charges. Please, he'll pay for it anyway because he's committed a crime. He needs to be nailed to the wall. And you know that, Lord, and I know that. So I don't think you told her to drop the charges like she says. I think she's just saying that because that's what she wants to do. 
But if you did tell her to drop the charges then, and then all of a sudden, the words popped into my mind. You stay out of it. This is between me and her. If I told her to drop the charges, then you have nothing to say about it. And then, of course, I straightened up. Well, yeah, God, if, if you really did tell her to drop the charges, then, yeah, you're right. It's none of my business. So I straightened right up. It's funny how God will throw a brick in your head once in a while. Anyway, she did. She dropped the charges, and then he made arrangements to pay for the dishes and the damage to the floor, which he did. But here's what we didn't know. What we didn't know was that while all of this was going on, the district attorney was watching all of this from behind the scenes. He examined the police reports. He was reading all of the testimonies, looked at the pictures. He kept up with what was going on back and forth. And once the charges had been dropped, the district attorney took over, filed his own charges against him, and cleaned his clock. He lost everything. So if you really want to get back at somebody, folks, I mean really want to get back at them, forgive them and see what God does. You may never see what God does. We were fortunate to see it, and I think that might have been God's way of showing me how important it is to do exactly, precisely what God says when he says it and lean not on your own understanding. That was 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, he hasn't been a problem since. Neat little story, but even her willingness to forgive still pales in comparison to what Jesus is talking about here. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Now get this next part. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Folks, this is radical stuff. But before we're finished with the whole gospel account, you'll notice that that is exactly what Jesus did. To Judas who betrayed him, the soldiers who arrested him, and even to the ones who put the nails in his hands. And folks, I have to be honest, this is one of those verses I just really wish wasn't here. Because I can't possibly see myself ever obeying this verse, ever. And yet, Jesus doesn't really give me a choice. I still have my free will, and of course all of my sins are paid for on the cross, but to not do what Jesus says here is a sin. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now some have taken this verse and actually broadened it to an extent that's not biblical, I mean, left alone the way it is, it's, I mean, it's radical enough. Somebody hits you off of them, your other cheek. But what if it isn't your cheek that's in danger of being hit, but somebody else's? Do you offer up their cheek? No. It's not your cheek to offer up. It's theirs. I bring this up because some people believe war against a nation that's attacked you is against this verse. No, it's not. Protecting others who can't defend themselves is a noble act. And we'll find Jesus saying something to that effect here before long. This isn't talking about not going to war or not getting into a fight to defend someone else who's defenseless. If it was, then Jesus would be disobeying it himself when he comes back in the future to defend Israel. A lot of blood going to be shed in those days by Jesus himself. He didn't lift a finger during his first visit to defend his own flesh. But in the second coming, he certainly will to defend Israel. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. 
See, folks, the idea behind all of this is who's really in control of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, then he's in control. Let him worry about your cheek. Let him worry about your cloak. Let him worry about all of your goods. If you're a follower of Christ, then everything you have was his to give you, and it's his to take away. That's the idea behind all of this. Your life is in his hands, so all of your needs are his problems, not yours. And you're to react to every circumstance with his love. That's the idea. Something else, when you get into the regular habit of looking at life that way, looking at your circumstances that way, and looking at everything that way, it completely changes who you are. Blessings that you didn't even notice before become visible. Freedoms that you've always had that you didn't notice before are suddenly made visible. Suddenly they're right there in front of you. Problems are put in a perspective that you never had before. And with all of this comes a feeling of invincibility that's indescribable. The awareness of God's personal and continuing care is brought close. You can feel his presence. You can feel him around you. It completely changes everything. The more we try to control things, the more we realize that we can't control it, and the more out of control it gets, and that's where all the chaos comes from. But the more we leave it up to him, the more peace, and that's the whole idea. Verse 31, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. This is Luke's equivalent to Matthew's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It isn't do unto others as they currently do unto you. It's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Simply put, just treat others the way you want to be treated. If you wouldn't like being treated the way you treat others, then why do you do it? Anyway, verse 31. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But I say love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now this next verse is probably more famous, folks, more famous than John 3.16, Because it gets quoted all the time by people who've never in their entire life even seen the inside of a Bible. As a matter of fact, this single verse is the favorite verse of atheists, Wiccans, homosexuals. Just about everybody loves this verse. We all love it, but the world really loves it. It's their favorite. The Antichrist himself will probably quote this verse to Jesus just before Jesus defeats him and puts him in chains. And that's Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. People who don't know anything at all about the Bible know this verse, and they quote it constantly, and they misapply it. So first, let's talk about what it actually means, and then we'll talk about what it doesn't mean. The point of this verse in the context of the whole sermon is that we as followers of Christ should forgive others the same way we ourselves have been forgiven by God that's the point of this verse that forgiveness was not earned it was given to us out of an unconditional love and mercy we have escaped judgment because of an act of love on God's part not on ours but on God's part Therefore, we have no right 
to withhold forgiveness from other people who have wronged us because no one has ever come close to wronging us the way we wronged God and God forgave us. We as members of the human race, we took the title deed to the planet earth that he created for us and we put it in the hands of Satan in the Garden of Eden. But God forgave us. Then he gave us the Ten Commandments. Then we broke the Ten Commandments and he forgave us. Then he became a man and came to the planet Earth. And he healed the sick. He restored limbs to the crippled. He gave sight to the blind. And after he did, we spit on him. We punched him in the face. We tore off his beard. We slapped a crown of thorns on his head. We put nails in his hands and we hung him on a cross to die. He forgave us. Folks, as a species, by all rights, we should be dead. But we're not. We're still here. And as followers of Christ, not only are we not dead, we've been promised eternal life, blessings, and riches in the kingdom of God. So that's what this verse means. After all the forgiveness that's been given to us for all the horrible things we've done, where do we get off self-righteously judging and condemning others as though somehow we're better than them? No, we're not. If we are, it's only by God's grace and God's mercy, certainly not by anything we've ever done. So the whole business of judging and condemning is in God's hands, not ours. And that's what this verse means. But there's a big difference between judging and using good judgment. Completely different ballgame. This verse does not mean we're to be blind and not recognize what's good and what's bad or what's right and what's wrong. We are called to condemn sin. We're not called to condemn sinners because we're all sinners. But we are called to condemn sin. Condemning and recognizing sin for being sin is healthy. It's a good thing. It's healthy on an individual level, and it's healthy as a society. To not recognize sin for what it is is dangerous. We're not called to condemn people, but we are called to condemn sin. We shouldn't judge or condemn the drunk driver. We should forgive the drunk driver. But that doesn't change the nature of what drunk driving is. So choosing not to get into the car with a drunk driver isn't a judgment against him. It's a judgment against the nature of what drunk driving is. You're not worried about him killing you. You're worried about being killed in an accident because of his drunk driving. It's completely different. We shouldn't judge or condemn the homosexual. We should forgive the homosexual, but that doesn't change the nature of what homosexuality is. God said it was a sin. It's a psychological and sexual perversion, and every society and history that has ever embraced it has fallen. That's not an opinion. Those are historical facts of reality. Am I judging the homosexual? No. He might think so, but I'm not. I don't know his story. I'm not in his shoes. We've all made choices, good and bad, and I am no better than he is. But none of that changes the nature of what homosexuality is. We shouldn't judge or condemn the pedophile. We should forgive the pedophile. But that doesn't change the nature of what pedophilia is. So choosing not to hire a pedophile to coach your little league baseball team isn't a judgment against him. It's a judgment against the horrible dangers of pedophilia itself. We're not called to condemn sinners, but we are called to condemn sin. So when Jesus says, judge not, and you shall not be judged, condemn not, and you shall not be condemned, forgive, and you will be forgiven, what Jesus is forbidding in this verse isn't the judgment of sin, but a judgmental, condemning spirit against people without mercy and without love. One of the more recent examples of this is the Westboro Baptist Church, where members of its congregation started picketing around public places with picket signs that said, God hates fags. 
This is the kind of behavior that Jesus condemned. If those individual members of Westboro Baptist Church are really Christians, and that's a very big if, then they're in for a big surprise when they get to the judgment seat. God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. He hates the sin because he knows where it really came from. He knows why it's there presently. He knows of the pain that caused it, and he knows what brought it about, and he knows of the continual pain that it causes. And that goes not just for homosexuality, but every sin. That's why he hates the sin. But he loves the sinner. He died for the sinner. But on the other hand, you've got other churches that are on the other side of the spectrum that are just as wrong. They're inviting homosexuals to come to their church to get married. And they quote Luke 6.37 as their reasoning. Who are we to judge? Let's let them get married with a Christian wedding. My gosh, folks, I can't imagine anything more twisted than that. No place in the Bible is homosexuality condoned. It may be forgiven because of the cross, but it's not condoned. God won't recognize that marriage. Anyway, let's keep moving. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will it be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. And he said, Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that's in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. That one's a lot of fun to read, folks. It doesn't require too much commentary. It's self-explanatory. But notice Jesus isn't against your helping to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Just make sure you've got the plank that's stuck in yours out first. I'm a smoker that's almost quit smoking. I used to smoke a pack and a half a day. That's roughly 30 cigarettes a day. I'm down to only smoking between five and seven cigarettes a day now, hoping to be completely free this summer. But before I started cutting back, I remember a close family member counseling me on the health risks that I was taking by smoking cigarettes. He got into the dangers against heart disease, heart attack, stroke, and then after he went through all of that, then he really laid a guilt trip on me and talked about how the human body of a Christian is called the temple of God. But the whole time he was telling me this, all I could think about was how overweight he was. I mean, he was huge. He ate four giant meals a day. This guy literally filled up more than half the front seat of the car we were sitting in while he was telling me all this. And he's more than 20 years older than me. And while he was going through all of this, all I wanted to do was say, what do you think you're doing to your temple? When you've stopped eating four giant meals a day and have lost a couple hundred pounds, then you can talk to me about smoking cigarettes. Of course, his eating problem didn't take away from the truth of what he was telling me about my smoking problem. But at the same time, it's kind of difficult to listen to a truth bearer who doesn't listen to his own truth. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. Verse 43, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. 
See, this portion of Jesus' sermon would seem to contradict the part where he said, Judge not, lest ye be judged, if we're to believe world's interpretation of that verse. Because here, Jesus is labeling fruit as either good fruit or bad fruit. And then he tells us, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Verse 46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Jesus is pointing out an oxymoron. On the one hand, we call him Lord. That was a title given to kings who made commands. We call him Lord, but then we don't do the things which he says. Do we really see him as our Lord if we can decide for ourselves whether or not we want to follow his teachings? That's the point that he's making here. You could turn that verse around and say, Why do you not do the things which I say, but still call me Lord? That kind of drives the point home, doesn't it? Verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. In other words, anyone who hears his sayings and does them is smart. By doing what he says, you're helping yourself, you're protecting yourself, you're doing what's best for yourself. Something else here, Jesus says it's like building your house laid on a rock foundation, whose house is protected when the flood arose. The stream could not shake it because it was founded on the rock. Notice it didn't say that if you built the house on the rock, you would never be flooded. I think that's interesting. Doesn't make any difference whether you put your house on a rock or not. That house is going to be bombarded with a flood at one time or another. In other words, no matter who you are, saved or not, disciple or not, life has its troubles. But if you build your house on the rock, there's a foundation there, and you'll survive. That's the whole point. And there's something else here. From Genesis to Revelation, wherever the word rock appears, it symbolizes Jesus Christ. You don't see it when you're up close to a single verse like we are here, but dig out a Strong's Concordance, look up the word rock, and you'll see it. It'll give you goosebumps. All throughout Psalms, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. He alone is my rock and my salvation, and so on. The first place the word rock appears is in Exodus 17, verse 6 where God told Moses to hit the rock with his staff so that water would come out of it and give drink to the thirsting Israelites who were wandering around in the desert. The symbolism there is intriguing because what does water symbolize? The Holy Spirit. What did Moses' staff symbolize? God's judgment. So a symbol of God's judgment was to smite a symbol of Jesus Christ so that a symbol of the Holy Spirit would come out and end the thirst of the Israelites. Hmm. Sounds like a prophecy of Jesus' first coming, doesn't it? Later on in Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites get thirsty again. God told Moses to speak to the rock. Not hit it, but speak to the rock so that it would bring forth water. Don't hit it. Just speak to it. And this was to symbolize Jesus' second coming, where he isn't smitten, but asked by Israel to return. Of course, Moses got mad at the Israelites, forgot what God told them, and he hit the rock anyway and ruined the prophetic model, which is why God got mad at him. To make sure the prophetic symbolism was still intact, God had to punish Moses to drive the point home and keep the symbolic model. Jesus is smitten once and only once, and once and for all during his first coming. But before his second coming, Jesus is humbly asked by Israel to come. Not to be smitten, but to be worshipped as the Messiah. 
Anyway, this concludes Luke's record of the famous Sermon on the Mount, or what may be a sermon that's similar to the famous Sermon on the Mount that's recorded exhaustively in Matthew. And I think that's where we're going to leave it for now, folks. I was going to try to get Matthews in, but that's just no way in the world. There's no point in even getting started. <laughs> it's three chapters long. So that's Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And next week we'll get started in Matthew chapter 5 and see if we can't get through Matthew's account of it. Until then, folks, we're out of here. Take care.